Tonight's lesson is from the prophecies of Nahum and Zephaniah. We're going to start with the scripture lesson that was suggested in our our booklet, our handout that you probably don't even have unless you have it online. That's the only way you would probably know about it. That verse is found in Zephaniah 2, verse 3. This is what it says. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. This verse is broken down into three basic parts. Uh, Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, and seek meekness. Meekness in this uh, setting uh, looks to be humility. Meekness is something that is probably not sought after very much as uh, the general world in which we live in would rather be bold and be powerful and be uh, smart. Uh, meekness somehow or another doesn't seem to fit the bill, but it does in God's economy. It's a, a humble position, and it's a good place to be. Humility of that type uh, would appear to be willing to accept the fact that we don't know it all, but that God does. If God knows it all, we can leave the big problems in his hands, and if he lets us deal with some little things, uh, he'll give us directions along those lines as well. But the, the opener of that verse just basically says, seek the Lord. That's good admonition. And we trust that tonight we can send you in that direction to seek God first. The last part of that verse actually refers to the fact that it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Well, we want to certainly be in a in a good place with God. If we're in the right place with God, we will be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And that's where we would uh, look to be uh, every day, actually, in every day of our life. I wanted to, to address one part of this tonight and say, what will we be looking at tonight? What, what is the, the subject at hand, uh, kind of broken down in a few, few smaller pieces? I would call them God understands even if we don't, one part. The prophecy against Nineveh. Nineveh was a great city. And lastly, faith versus unbelief. At the beginning, we'd like to look at God understands even if we don't. Have you ever asked God, why is this happening? Why do we have to go through this? Why are... Uh, everything seems to be coming undone. I suppose uh, human nature comes out there when we begin to solicit the mighty God with such a humble question. Why are you doing this to us? God's not doing anything to us. God allows things to happen sometimes to put us in the right position or put our heart in the right position that we can hear from God so that God can speak to us. God wants to speak to us. 
we have to have an open heart to be willing to hear from God, and sometimes things have to be allowed. And so, therefore, uh, God understands even if we don't. And that's, that's a good thing. I wanted to jump straight ahead to the New Testament briefly and look at a scripture in Luke chapter 19, three verses actually, Luke 19, uh, 41 through 44. And this is referring to Jesus as he approached Jerusalem or probably looked on over Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. This is unique in thinking that Almighty God, the Son of God, would weep over a city. Well, he could weep over the city of Jerusalem, looking on, realizing that within that city there was people there who didn't know him, who didn't know God, who were going to be in great great trouble soon. He goes on to say, If thou hadst known, even thou at least, in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. And then he, he summarizes this thought with, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. It seems that there's a special time for everybody in the sight of God that he lays out for us as his point of visiting us. He wants to come to us on a personal level. And uh, this visitation, if you will, by God uh, was troubling to Jesus to the point that he wept over the city, recognizing the fact that they had not that recognized him. And their day of visitation would come and, and be gone at this point. And their city, their beautiful city of Jerusalem, would be uh, destroyed. Not uncommon in the Middle East. It appears that, if you study some of this history, that the conquerors throughout the probably throughout the world, but in particular in the Middle East, when they would conquer, they would destroy. They would take away everything that wasn't tied down and haul it back to their land, wherever that land was. And uh, then they would destroy and they would burn like they did Jerusalem, and they would burn and destroy and, and leave everything in, in one big mess. Going back to the fact that God understands, well, we sure don't understand those things. That's for certain. Moving forward out of the New Testament, going backwards, I suppose you might say, I wanted to look at the prophecy surrounding Nehemiah and, or surrounding Nineveh, the subject of Nineveh, from Nahum and Zephaniah's point of view. But I'm actually looking at the destruction of Nineveh first, and then we will go to the actual city of Nineveh for a brief overview of the city and what it, what it was before. Jonah, remember Jonah? He kind of comes into the picture here, doesn't he? Because he actually would have been probably the first prophet to speak to the people of Nineveh. 
And as we recall the, the story of Jonah, it's a true story. Why do we say that? Jesus verified that story in the New Testament. He validated the fact that he recognized Jonah as a real person and it was a real event in the eyes of Jesus. And why would we doubt anything that Jesus would validate? So Jonah is referenced here and it says in Jonah 3, 4, and Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey and he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This was probably around 862 B.C., so it's a long time ago. And so Jonah spoke, and the people of Nineveh evidently repented, according to the, the scriptures. The, there was a, some kind of a conversion that took place there, and these people didn't know what we know. They had very limited knowledge of, of uh, the scriptures that we would understand today and, and, and obviously not know of Jesus at all. But they were moved by this man Jonah. They evidently believed Jonah. And that was to their advantage in believing Jonah because at that time, Nineveh uh, had a reprieve. It had some time off before destruction. It was a, quite a number of years uh, went by uh, after Jonah's time there. In fact, there is a place there that uh, is known as the burial site of Jonah. However, greatly disturbed uh, through the years as the people come and go and destroy places, and that's what they pretty much did to the area where Jonah is buried there. Nahum is an interesting name for the subject of the book of Nahum. His name means compassionate. That sounds like Jesus, but Nahum's name meant compassionate or it meant full of comfort. And it just, when you read the book of Nahum and you read through it, you think, where's the compassion? I'm looking for compassion. Well, it's, uh, it's there. You just have to look for it. It's, it's, it's brief, but it's there. Same way with Zephaniah. It's, it's there, but how, how briefly? thinking in terms of, of subject matters that you would pick up and, and think, well, I, I want to find a scripture, I want to find a book in the Bible where I can encourage people and, and give them something to think about that is uh, helpful in their daily life, helpful in their families, helpful with their children. It probably wouldn't be Nahum or Zephaniah because it, there's so much uh, hurt and trouble goes on in those, in those books that uh, I would tend to veer away from that. But I think we can find something good just the same. And we will we will look for it. Nahum actually is uh, recognized as the author of Nahum. And Nahum, uh, the book of Nahum, is actually recognized probably as a follow-up to the book of Jonah. So that if you follow reading Jonah and then read Nahum, they kind of would uh, complement one another in that way. Written around 640 B.C. again, a long time ago. There were several, several questions referred to in the handout or the, the, the one that you would read online. But I've only looked at a couple of these questions, and we'll do that briefly. Uh, one, one is like a two-part question. It says, how would you feel if you were an Assyrian hearing this prophecy? Or, in the case of another part of the question, how would you feel if you were a person from the land of Judah? It's kind of hard to ask a question about how people feel. 
So maybe we could just take a guess how they might feel. Well, for the people of Assyria, they pretty much ignored this, ignored this prophet. They weren't interested in anything the prophet of God had to say because they had their own gods. They had their own gods, however feeble they were and useless they were and uh, fabulous were their uh, uh, temples that they built to these gods. It seemed like every time they come up with a new god, they'd build another temple. And they did that in Nineveh. And they uh, no doubt were beautiful, beautiful places as far as worldly beauty is concerned. Uh, looked like they put all their efforts into these uh, structures. And uh, yet for what? So therefore, when the prophet of God would come along with a subject like this that says, you are going to be destroyed, you are going to be eliminated, and your, your city will be destroyed, well, they just shrugged that off because they wouldn't, they wouldn't believe it. And yet there were people that did believe, the people of Judah. No doubt many of the people of Judah, when they heard that message, had a different feeling about it because they were basically subject to the government, so to speak, of Nineveh, and uh, they were obligated to whatever responsibilities they had there. Maybe they had jobs. Uh, no doubt they had jobs that weren't always the best jobs, but so often the Jewish people f seemed to find uh, pretty good jobs, and they were very smart people, so sometimes they were the ones responsible uh, uh, for uh, various projects around the world, in fact. So different opinions on that, I'm sure. One other question mentions the fact that what can we learn about God's nature and attributes from these verses? R referring to Nahum uh, chapter 1, and it's, it refers to verses 2 through 7. So I'll just summarize a few things that they mentioned here. God is a jealous God. He loves his people in a jealous way. He does not want his people to be sold under sin or taken out of, out of his sight or out of his control. God wants to love people. God wants to care for people. He wants to do good for people. He doesn't want to hurt people. He's a jealous God. But God is slow to anger. And God's power is shown in and through nature. We see that sometimes with the various... Uh, Worldwide things that happen, tsunamis and earthquakes and uh, tidal waves and uh, uh, cyclones, all sorts of natural disasters, tornadoes. And yet somehow if you, you, you go and look back at those things, in some cases you see how God preserved certain people in those terrible times. And he came through for them, people who prayed uh, in, in early years uh, of this country in the United States. Uh, they would be farming, farming in the Midwest somewhere and great hailstorms would come and people would, would pray and they say they would bring their, their subject before God and God would intervene. He'd stop hailstorms at the fence line of these people's property. That's nothing but a miracle. We believe in miracles. God is still in the miracle business and we're thankful for that. God's anger is like a fiery volcano. How do you like that? Uh, there was one reference, one, one scripture, I think the sixth, sixth verse talks about that. God is good. God is good. God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. God knows those who trust him or trust in him. We trust in him, don't we? Don't we believe God? Believe that God knows everything? That uh, God understands how to, to watch over his people? We look to him and we say, Lord, I'm, I'm one of your people. Don't forget me. 
Well, we don't maybe say it quite that way. Maybe you do, and that's okay. But we come before God on a regular basis because we believe God understands our situation and he understands our prayer life. He understands when we bring prayer requests before him because we have friends and loved ones who need prayer and we bring those requests before the people of God and say, God, help these people. Help us to pray for them. So the end of the city of Nineveh, what was that? The end of the city. Well, after a siege by combined force made up of Medes, Scythians, and Babylonians, it fell in August 612 B.C. The king and many of his officers were killed during this attack. It's interesting that Babylon, as one of these culprits in this, came to destroy Nineveh. Okay, But at one point, Nineveh came to destroy Babylon. And it kind of went back and forth like that throughout uh, the Middle, Middle East. These different countries would, would come and, and, and clobber one another and kill one another. And, and why did they do that? Well, Nineveh, oddly enough, was known as the robber city. It was the robber city. It was the, it was the one who would come, they would conquer you, and then they would steal everything they could. Everything that wasn't tied down, they hauled back to Nineveh. And they became a very wealthy place. Uh, Nineveh was quite wealthy at, at various points in time. And uh, this was uh, one of those times. However, we see it didn't last, didn't it? 612 B.C., August of 612 B.C., they claim that's the date when uh, Nineveh was uh, destroyed at that particular time. An interesting scripture is found in Nahum 2.6. I'll read that. The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. Isn't that a strange way of saying something's going to be destroyed? It's going to be dissolved? What do you mean dissolved? Well, it just so happens uh, that uh, at the one side of the city where, where the river Kosher uh, the Kosher River or Kosher River flows into the city. Well, it flows into a certain point. In other words, they had floodgates that would stop the river from flowing into the city so they could basically control the amount of water that would come into the city. And uh, at this point, to destroy the city, all they did was they just opened up these floodgates and in comes this flood. But the unique thing was this city was built not only of stone, but it was built of sun dried brick, sun-dried brick. You can imagine how they built these brick. They would put them in these various molds, different size molds, no doubt, and uh, materials with somewhat similar to maybe cement or concrete or whatever. And then they would put them out to the sun to dry, and when they were hard, then they could build walls with them. They built a lot of walls, and they had a lot of brick in this area. But this palace literally dissolved because when this water came in and these bricks were broken down by the water, the palace was dissolved. A new term for dissolved, isn't it? Reading from Zephaniah and in the uh, second chapter of Zephaniah, uh, reads, it validates a little more of the reference, the fact that these two books kind of go together uh, in, in, the, in the aspect of Nineveh itself. Zephaniah 2, verse 13, and, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation 
and dry like a wilderness, and flocks shall lie down in the midst of her, and all the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant and the bittern, shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be in the thresholds, for he shall uncover the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly. How do you like those words? This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly. They were rejoicing. This is the, the, the sinners of that day were rejoicing carelessly. Well, we can uh, assume what we will there. Uh, sometimes the rejoicing carelessly leads to great mischief and great things that we don't want to go there. That said in her heart, I am and there is none beside me. How is she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. So the prophecy stood. If anything we can do is to recognize that these scriptures stand tall. No matter what man comes up with, man will be wrong every time if they try to violate the scriptures. The scriptures, uh, maybe not even totally understood at times uh, by us as we might read something that sounds a little peculiar like a, a palace being dissolved, but history tells us the palace was dissolved, literally dissolved, and so forth. But these scriptures are fulfilled. We can believe them, and we trust them to be true. And if we can trust them to be true in, in that day, we can trust God in this day. We only live in this day, and this is the day we live in, and this is the day in which we uh, trust God to help us with our daily concerns. Now let's talk about the city of Nineveh briefly. It was a great city. It was uh, known at that time as one of the oldest large cities in the world. And uh, it had a population possibly 150,000 people at that time. We might not think of that as being very very many people, but in the year 700 B.C., that was a lot of people in one city. And uh, it was actually probably twice the size of Babylon in population at that particular time. When we look at Babylon, we always think of Babylon as fabulous as it was, and it was a fabulous city as well. But uh, this city outshined, outshined them all for, for a short time. And actually, that's a good point to think of it as a short time because really it wasn't that long lived. Nineveh was built on the east side of the Tigris River, and, and which would be just across from the modern city of Mosul. Mosul, we remember from the wars uh, fought in more recent years in the Persian Gulf and up through that region, our people from our own armies uh, were there in Mosul and throughout that land. But Mosul was on basically the river flows at that particular point flows from the uh, north to the south right through uh, the, between these two cities. And uh, consequently, that was that divide. But there were separate cities. I think there's even a bridge that went across between the two cities at one point. We've probably heard about the Fertile Crescent. This area is known as the Fertile Crescent. And I looked at it on a, on a, a map of that hour, and it basically... Uh, they, con they consider the Fertile Crescent to come up actually from Egypt through uh, Israel, up through Lebanon, possibly touching Turkey, and then kind of coming around the corner, I call it, come around the corner and come down by where Nineveh is and past Mosul and then on down uh, 
continuing on down through uh, the land which we refer to as Mesopotamia and then flows into the Persian Gulf. Actually, the two rivers of the Tigris and the, and the, uh, the Euphrates, they, they flow together eventually, but not until the last about 118 miles or so where they actually join together before they dump into the Persian Gulf. That area is a fertile crescent. This is a, a fertile area where things grow. You've got water, you can grow things. And that's what they did. They learned irrigation years and years before anybody else learned about irrigation. They knew how to irrigate the land. Oddly enough, parts of the Tigris were actually salty, which surprised me. But it's, uh, it, it wouldn't be that way all the time for some reason. Well, it would be very brackish, I think they called it. And it was, uh, so somehow they had to get around that. They need fresh water generally. But anyway, the Tigris would flow past and through that area the Euphrates River, uh, I think they say is around 1,740 miles in length, and the Tigris about 1,150 miles in length. Two very long rivers. As I thought about this, read about this a little, I thought of the Mississippi River and the Missouri River. Very much similar, longer rivers. The Missouri uh, runs from Montana and eventually joins with the Mississippi in uh, just north of St. Louis, Missouri. And it's very long rivers, much longer than these two rivers. But these rivers are unique in the same way. They're fertile areas, places where they can plant crops, grow crops, places these rivers flood. They flood after a winter uh, and uh, leave good fertile soil to, to, to grow on. And if you've driven through the Midwest, you see what grows. They've all kinds of crops grow in these fertile uh, flood, flood air, flooded flood areas uh, around these various rivers. Uh, throughout the Midwest. You can imagine that in, in Nineveh's day. This, we, we picture, I don't know why we picture it this way. I've never been there, so maybe the only reason I picture it this way, I picture desert. Don't you picture it as desert? Desert land, sand, dirt, and camels, things like that. It probably is a lot like that in parts of it, uh, but there were also very beautiful areas, no doubt. They had lots of beautiful uh, products that grew there, beautiful trees, palm trees, I suppose, and it was a, could have been at one time a very beautiful land. Nineveh had no shortage of water. Of course, water eventually became the demise of that, that, that one palace, or basically the city of Nineveh, part of it anyway. There was also an elaborate system of 18 canals that flew, that, that flowed through Nineveh. And they actually built great aqueducts. We always think of aqueducts and the Romans. Well, uh, they, they built aqueducts as well. And they would come from miles and miles away to bring in, no doubt, that fresh water that they would need to support a city of any size for that matter. So it was very important that the water would flow into Nineveh. Nineveh, uh, around 722 thereabouts, was the capital of Assyria. Later, the man we know of as Sennacherib, he was the king who came in and made Nineveh his royal residence. It was the main city of his empire. And he, like so many of those uh, early conquerors, they were builders. They would be building things, and they did. And he, he modernized uh, uh, Nineveh. He fresh streets and squares and, the, and of course, the palace, this one palace, the palace they call the palace without a rival. 
Interesting, kind of a proud thought, isn't it? Doesn't sound very humble. If you have a palace without a rival, it's better than everybody else's palace. It's the best. One estimate for its size, because they've done some digging there back in the 1800s before ISIS came along and destroyed a lot of things. 600 by 630 feet, which is approximately, what's over nine acres of land that this palace area covered with something like 80 rooms within there. I don't know what these rooms were like, but it was a huge, huge uh, operation as a palace. This was Sennacherib. Remember Sennacherib, okay? What about him? Well, as often happens with ungodly leaders, they don't always uh, have a good end. And that was the case of Sennacherib. Remember Sennacherib? Second Kings chapter 19. Second Kings 19.35 And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they rose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. His army was destroyed by one angel in one night. A hundred and eighty-five thousand died in one night. I suppose a person could discount it. Not, we're not going to discount it because we believe the Word of God. We believe what the Bible says. We look into the Bible and say, I believe what the Bible says. That, that's where we're coming from today. And if the Bible says it, that's good enough. It says, So Sennacherib, king of Syria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. That was a sad trip home. It's a long distance, too, uh, from uh, uh, Israel. Well, what we know of as Israel, Palestine back to Nineveh, and he went back to Nineveh, and what happened? And it came to pass as he was worshiping the house of Nisroch. See, he had a god. It wasn't a very good one. Nisroch, his god, that Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Ezar Hadan, his son, reigned in his stead. It was all over for Sennacherib. Really sad when you think about it. These incredible conquerors and builders would come to such a horrifying end because they, they had wrong motivation. They weren't motivated to do what they did as unto the Lord. They did it for their own glory, no doubt, and their own glory was didn't last that long. I think actually Sennacherib uh, was pretty much in charge there for only about 50 years, which is not that long, you would think. At the beginning, we looked at Zephaniah 2.3, and the last part of that verse mentions, it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Okay. Part of Zephaniah refers to uh, repentance, basically. There's a part of it that, that directs a people to repentance. And that's a good thing. Uh, there was a need for repentance, and no doubt some repented. There was a promise of blessing, uh, what the, which you find in the last part of, of the book of Zephaniah. Uh, that blessing came about in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. That was good. No more evil. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. 
He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. There was a, a joyful time coming. Sometimes the joy comes later. And in this case, there was a reference to the joy that would come later. But they look forward to that joy. The, the people of God were part of this, at least. They look forward to the day when God would intervene. Well, faith versus unbelief. What can we, we say about that? Second Thessalonians 1.10 says, When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Now follow that believe for a minute admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. You see, it was important that the people believed, okay? Let's define something real quickly here. A witness. A witness is one who testifies to what he has seen, heard, seen or heard, otherwise observed. When we get saved, we are a witness of that salvation. We can recognize the fact that God saved me. God changed my life. I'm a witness to that fact. I stand in, in the court, God's court, and I can say, I'm a witness of that. I'm a witness of it. But the next part of that is the testimony. Evidence given by competent witness. I'm the witness, and I can testify now of being a competent witness because I was there. When you witness something that God does in your life, don't deny it. Believe it. Enforce it. Rehearse it. Remind yourself. Take yourself back to that place in your personal history and say, God saved me right there. I was in how many times when we're over here in the church, we hear people say, I was right over there. And they're, they're looking across the street. And I'm thinking there's people that don't even know where we are. And they're thinking, what's across the street? But anyways, we know it's the tabernacle across the street. And that's where people prayed. And they were a witness to something real one day. And they are still talking about it because they're testifying of what the Lord has done. Faith versus unbelief. Unbelief will do nobody any good. Faith will do you all good. Remember John 14, 27, and we'll conclude there. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I think that's good admonition for our day. It's a good admonition for any day. These folks from Nineveh, they suffered greatly. There was many slaves in that city that worked there and around that city and around that region. They did not have it easy. The people of God did not have that easy. I don't even think the people that were the good guys had it that easy. There were many wealthy people. Sometimes wealthy people don't have it that easy. But with God, if we take a hold of something like this, John fourteen twenty seven, and know that Jesus provides us with peace, We've got the best part. Don't you believe that? We believe that, and we're thanking God tonight that we can trust the Lord in the midst of the storm because he provides peace. He takes care of the trouble. might take a little while, but we're trusting him just the same.